This is the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and it'd be great to see you on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs. However, Jason Lemkin and I do not just want to see you on Snapchat and Twitter. It'd be fantastic to meet in person, and now we can. Sasta Annual 2018, and thanks to the kind bank of Mr. Jason Lemkin, we now have drinkswithharry.com. Essentially, not only do you get 10% off the ticket price to the event, but also an endless supply of mojitos with me. Again, that's drinkswithharry.com, and it'd be fantastic to see you there. However, to the show today, and I'm thrilled to welcome... Sean Sinha, founder and CEO at Hi5, the startup that quite simply makes insanely simple video conferencing. And they've raised over $45 million in funding from some of the best in the business, including the likes of Andreessen, Lightspeed, Founder Collective, General Catalyst, and then individuals including Aaron Levy, Drew Houston, and Mark Benioff. Prior to Hi5, though, Sean was the group product manager for Google Apps for Enterprise, which he joined following Google's 2010 acquisition of his prior company, Docverse, which later became part of Google Drive. And I do also want to give a big hand to the main man, Mr. Jason Lemkin, for the intro to Sean today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But before we move into the show today, if you're a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations, hiring execs, developing managers, and retaining that top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one performance management solution for growing companies. With Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 performance review cycles as often as you want, and you also get this incredible continuous feedback system with OKR goal tracking, real-time feedback, and one-on-one meetings to make sure employees get feedback between reviews. So find out why the likes of Coinbase, PlanGrid, Birchbox and WePay trust Lattice as their performance management solution by heading over to Lattice.com to start investing in your people. That's Lattice.com the number one performance management solution for growing companies. And we mentioned WePay there and it's thanks to my friends at WePay that I can introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS and Co. A platform designed by freelancers for freelancers to help them run their businesses more effectively. The software provides robust tools to simplify a range of workflows including contracts, task management, time tracking, invoicing, income management and reporting. Learn more at and.co and to learn how you can hit a hole in one with revenue from integrated payments like andco did, visit wepay.com forward slash sasta. Wepay's got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash sasta. But enough from me and I'm now thrilled to hand over to Sean Sinha, founder and CEO at High Five. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Sean, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A big hand to Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today. Well, excited to be here. Well, it's very kind of you, but I'd love to kick off today with a little about you and how you came to, let's start with, make your way into the world of SaaS first. Yeah, so I've been in the world of SaaS for going on 10 years now. I was at Microsoft back in the day, right when the cloud was starting to emerge as a thing. I ended up leaving, started a company uh, focused on document collaboration, synchronizing content to the cloud, co-editing, all sorts of things like that. That company got bought by Google. The product that we built became Google Drive. And while I was at Google, I was running Google Enterprise Apps, which, as you know, was one of the foremost tools that really started to pave the way to make SaaS a legitimate model. And so it was a pretty fantastic experience to be at Google going through that process. I'm sure. And what an incredible entrance into the world. But you mentioned there the founding of the company called Docverse. So I'd love to start on the takeaways for you from that successful acquisition and the scaling to that acquisition. Yeah, so it was pretty interesting. The Docverse 
was uh, an idea that was born out of a bunch of work that we were doing at Microsoft. I was working on SharePoint, and SharePoint built itself as a product that was focused on helping people collaborate. While it was doing very well commercially, it didn't really do a whole lot of that, namely helping people collaborate. And so we started a company, and the company was among the crop of companies I was aiming to help people work together more effectively. And that's where uh, we got into the world of SaaS, and or where I specifically got into the world of SaaS. Uh, the company ended up doing pretty well. We ended up getting bought by Google. We had just started to introduce our product into the market when Google said, hey, come along, do this as part of us. And so we never really even got to that point of initial scale. I think we really got to that point, you know, I think using Jason's terminology here, we were approaching that point of initial traction. And Google said, come along, do this as part of us. And from there, we just started to, I personally started to uh, really learn a lot about how you build a SaaS operation. Google had been doing it for a while, but this was all before all of the vocabulary had become mature. And so it was a pretty amazing experience. And then when we left Google to start High Five, there was a lot of maturity around our understanding of SaaS businesses that we were able to take with us when we started this company. I mean, I can't imagine a SaaS world pre-Jason Lemkin, but (laughs) (laughs) uh, he pays me to say that too, don't worry. Um, But I do want to ask, you said there about kind of uh, the knowledge around building SaaS ops. What was the knowledge that you maybe didn't have then, but do now, do you think, taking that meta perspective? Well, what's really interesting about the world, and this was now going back to 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I think you probably remember this, SaaS had just really started to come back into vocabulary, but B2B technology wasn't very popular. It was still all about consumer, all about social networking. And so the B2B models hadn't quite evolved yet. We were still moving out of a world where it was about licensed software and getting revenue this year and starting the clock over from one quarter to the next or one year to the next. It wasn't until probably that late 2000s period between 2007, 2010, that the terms like MRR and ARR and churn and what are some effective ratios and LTV to CAC ratios and all of that really started to, we started to develop a a bunch of understanding around that. And just to give you a little bit of insight, even when we were managing our business at Google, uh, Google Enterprise Apps, you know, it was very well into the nine figures of revenues. We weren't using any of the typical SaaS terminology or the vocabulary or maturity of understanding to manage and operate the business. Can I ask then, do you think it's necessary if you if you can form such strong and stable and sustainable businesses without it, do you think this inherent focus on CAT to LTV payback periods and every other metric is really necessary? You know, I think the answer is it's probably not necessary because at the end of the day, what you're really trying to do is build a valuable product and all of the analysis is really just a way to understand the business. Now, that said, I think what it does is a number of things, all of the maturity that we have now. I think it, it offers a, a number of things. Number one, it gives you a very quick way to analyze problems which you might have had to had to stumble through or muddle through without a sophisticated pattern matchability. The second thing I think it gives you is it lets you optimize your models. There are benchmarks and thresholds that you can use to figure out how best to operate, where to focus your attention, what in your business needs work. And so I think the maturity is absolutely translated to a more sophisticated SaaS industry. And you can see it. And you know when you look at all those graphs of how quickly companies are going from zero to a million, zero to 10 million, zero to 100 million, whatever it is, I think the reason is because these businesses are just well understood or our understanding of these businesses is much more mature. I think also from a VC perspective, it makes uh, analyzing them much more accurate and easy from my perspective. Um, well, I think that's true. I think I think there's a, that's a double-edged sword, right? Because on the flip side, whenever you do something slightly different and it doesn't fit into the pattern match for 
uh, some VCs. Some VCs might have some trouble, you know, thinking about first principles and how do you, you know, what's what's the right way to think about it. But in general, it's absolutely been a categorical positive for the world of B two B technology. But sure, we've never met a rigid thinking VC, so that's a ridiculous <laughs> claim. Fair enough. That is, that uh, is definitely true. I, I do want to discuss though. I've interviewed many successful second time CEOs, and I've seen commonalities about how they operate and and change from experience one to experience two and, and even three sometimes. The first and kind of most common point is always their realization of the importance of customer success the second time around. I'd love to hear your thoughts and analysis around the importance of customer success for you today with High Five. It's really interesting you bring that up. I've heard you ask this question to others, so I think this is not even something that my team might have talked to you about ahead of time. But the thing that's really uh, interesting about us is customer success was the first group of non-engineers that we hired into the company, and we hired customer success people a full, I want to say, 18 to 24 months before we fully hit production and got into market in a GA sort of way. But completely pre-revenue. Absolutely pre-revenue. And we were midway through product development. I mean, we barely had an alpha product out when we hired our first customer success folks. And we brought on a team of uh, three people right away, of which those folks are still here today. And so, yeah, no, from the get-go, we, uh, and, and maybe this is a second-time founder thing, but we recognize a huge importance to customer success. And we've brought that into the company from the very early days. Can I ask, what was the profile of those first three hires in CS? And does that vary from the profile that you look for today? Definitely. So early on, what you really need to be looking for is folks that are comfortable with the idea that your product just really doesn't exist at that point in time. Because what you oftentimes found, or what we oftentimes found, was there's a number of customer success folks that are good at receiving a playbook, executing it, operating it, and focusing on one customer conversation to the next, moving from one task to the next. But at that stage of life, what you're really looking for, it's almost like the engineer version of a customer success person. You're trying to figure out what your playbook is going to be. Is it going to be a deployment-heavy approach? Is it going to be an adoption-related approach? What is that model going to look like? What signals are you looking for in your customers? And so what you're really looking for is adaptable, flexible folks that understand that the product really isn't working, and you're going to have to jump in and solve problems of the kind that you don't really have to worry about once you're past a certain point of scale. Just to give you an idea, our first sets of products didn't have any over-the-air update technology built in, which you know is one of these learnings that we could talk about down the line. But what ended up happening was we would send out all these, and as you know, we're a hardware software product, so we would send out all these units all around the country to customers. And at points in time, we ended up having to fly out, recollect all those units, bring them back, batch update all the technology, and then manage customer expectations through all that. These are not things that you're going to do once you're actually at GA, but you just have to find folks that are going to be flexible and interested in that experience of building something when something doesn't exist. Can I ask, do you have to have a scalable model from start then? You presented there a a highly unscalable model in terms of doing that batch (laughs) updating. Does it have to be scalable from the beginning? We certainly have not done things in a way where everything was scalable from the beginning. So no, I absolutely think that the priority you should have from the get-go is understanding all of the variables and factors that go into building a great experience. And sometimes you just have to go through the steps of sitting next to customers, tackling the things that they do in order to build the things that ultimately will scale. Because by definition, scaling is taking something that's working and then figuring out how you're going to be able to multiply that and repeat that in a machine-like way. But the early part of building out a product and building out a customer experience is about understanding what all those factors are going to be. So no, I actually think that doing the things that don't scale are 
are doing things in a way that is scalable oftentimes can get in the way of you trying to understand what the best possible experience is. And so we have a principle around here where we say, look, solve the problem first and then go figure out how to, to create the machine or the engine around it. There are places where you can skip that step if you have experience and foresight, but by and large, you know, if you're working on a problem that remains unsolved, it's going to be more often the case that the solution to the best experience hasn't been figured out yet. Speaking of scaling there, I, I'm intrigued. What do you think is more important? Is it logos or expansion? Where does the focus lie? Well, I think it varies. So we are today, just to give you a, a little bit of insight into High Five, we sell one of the best video conferencing systems that you can get on the market. Now, our focus has been on the small to mid-market segment. And so when we think about being able to go get logos that are recognizable, you're just not going to find those in the SMB market. And so we're building an engine that is working incredibly well in the SMB market. And so from our perspective, we focus on expansion. Expansion is what gives you the indication that your product is consistently delivering value. We got to a point where every dollar of revenue we were bringing in translated to an additional 60 to 70 cents of additional revenue over the course of the next three to four quarters. Those are some pretty phenomenal numbers for us that gave us great confidence that our product was working and it was delivering value. And it took us a while to get there. But as we think about continuing to sell into the SMB market, logos aren't as easily recognizable. So it's not necessarily going to be of as much value. Now, that said, as you start to think about business models that are designed to target larger enterprises and the Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 accounts, logos take on a relatively greater level of importance. And so they absolutely are important. One of the things that we found early on, a lot of our focus on logos ended up being directed towards fundraising efforts and things like that. So we definitely look for an emphasis on getting some logos. But all that said, internally at an operational level, the thing we really focus on is how customers are expanding. Can I ask, how do you think about payback period, selling to SMB with traditionally lower ACVs? How does that come into your mindset? So it is the most critical metric that we've been focused on as we've started to get past this point of initial scale. So we've been uh, in market for just over a year and a half now with our full SaaS-based model. And we started with zero ARR just not too long ago. And the growth has been absolutely phenomenal. But the proxy for how well our operation is working or how well our sales and marketing engine is working is really centered around this idea of getting effective payback on our acquisition costs. And so that is the single metric. If you go and talk to my revenue team, if you talk to my VP of marketing, if you talk to my head of sales, my head of revenue ops, uh, my head of customer success, if you go talk to all those folks, they will know that I've been chanting payback, payback, payback for well over 12 to 18 months now. And we're starting to hit some pretty amazing thresholds here that represent a very healthy business. And so we've been very, very focused on that. Now we put in all our costs. The thing that's unique about us, unlike a pure SaaS company, because we do hardware and software, we have this thing called hardware cogs that affects our gross margins. Gross margins for most SaaS companies are this sort of, oh, by the way thing I never have to remember. You know, when you're operating an 85, 90% gross margin business, you know, no problem. Your revenue is basically the same thing as your margin. It turns out for a company like ours, even though our sales and marketing engine is super efficient and looks just like a software 
for a SaaS company, our hurdle for payback is higher because we actually have to pay for those physical atoms that come together in our product. And so our uh, challenge has been about building an effective engine, but doing that with SaaS-like economics, which is a pretty incredible obstacle that I think our company has been able to achieve. Absolutely an incredible obstacle. You said that about getting to an amazing payback period. Can I ask, what does an amazing payback period look to you literally? What is the the goal in your mindset? So for us, for the last year, our goal was the typical standard that I think we always talk about SaaS, 12 months of payback on a gross margin basis over the course of one year. So for us, we've done all sorts of things like we include, we only sell on annual plans. We make the entire purchasing process super simple, 30-day free trials, 30-day money-back guarantees, and all that shows up. So we pay attention to return rates. We pay attention to renewal rates. We pay attention to, to expansion rates. And we factor all that into our CAC payback model. And so we're approaching a 12-month mark now on a gross margin basis. And that's with that added hurdle of additional costs associated with hardware. If we were a pure SaaS company with the 85-90% margins, uh, we'd be hitting close to 9 to 10 months at this point. But I, I do want to touch back on the ACVs element because uh, I'm a big follower of Tom Tungers. And Tom Tungers yep. has written before about the no man's land of ACVs, essentially selling in the middle between the very low and the very high ACVs. I'm intrigued. What's your thinking around this? And is there really a no man's land of SaaS pricing? And would you lie in it, potentially? <laughs> yeah, it's a really good question. So part of getting our CAC payback model and the improvements that we've made to get to where we wanted to be was really about lining up our ACVs and price points, which also had this other effect of improving our margins as well. So there's a whole bunch of related variables that go into our model. So for example, we had 10 different variables we were trying to optimize over the last year. And you could have six of them in the right place. You fix two of them. Another one takes a step back. And so that's kind of the process of getting to a really healthy spot. Now, my sense is that there really is no no man's land from a SaaS pricing model. I think there are successful companies, and I I think Tomas came to a similar conclusion, that there is a viable business at every price point. I think the implication of your price point is ultimately what matters. And what I mean is it's the implication on what your marketing and sales engine looks like. If you're sitting at that sub thousand dollar price point, there's no way that you can have a sales team. The math and the physics just doesn't work. There aren't enough hours in a day to justify a, a team to exist at that price point. Now, I think as you go up, you know, I think you start to evolve what models make sense. Maybe you have a purely sales-driven model. Maybe you have a purely marketing-driven model. Maybe you have a blended marketing and sales model. Now, I think your efficiencies can just get better as your ACVs go up, but I think that there is generally models that work at every threshold of ACV. No, I'm intrigued. At what threshold do you think a sales team can be warranted? I think Tom Tungas has said before $3,000 was his estimate. What's your take on what justifies an inside sales team? Yeah, so we have a model here at High Five that includes an online, it's a hybrid model that includes online marketing and inside sales. And our inside sales teams are here in the Bay Area. So there's a whole bunch of ways that you can optimize this. But I would say that seven to $10,000 ACVs are absolutely supportable through an inside sales-based model. If you take advantage of sales teams in other geographies where some of your costs may be lower, I think you could probably get that down to four or $5,000. And then I think if you have a model where all your marketing is relatively inexpensive, where you're not having to spend a whole lot of money to either generate awareness or generate leads, you could probably get that down to that three dollars to $4,000 mark. But I would say as a general rule of thumb, I would say the five dollars to $10,000 mark is about where an inside sales team really starts to make sense and can ultimately deliver really great results. Now, there are all kinds of other factors that go into this. What do your sales cycles look like? How hard is it to sell your product? All those types of things that really dictate the math on whether it works out or not. But at seven 
to ten thousand dollars, if you're able to do a healthy volume of transactions, you can definitely support an inside sales model. It's working for us. Can I ask, how does your hardware element and the kind of uh, reduced margin affect your thinking around particularly the CAC to LTV ratio? Yeah, so it's a good question. So you know, the reality is we don't have enough data yet to really characterize what our LTVs are. I mean, at the end of the day, we've been in market for seven quarters with our SaaS-based model, and so we've got estimates and models that predict anywhere from four or five-year LTVs or longer, but we don't have the certainty to know for sure. Now, all that said, the way we think about the world is pretty simple. On an efficiency basis, which is where we pay attention to payback metric, we absolutely factor in the cost of hardware and the cost of building that hardware. And so it creates a high hurdle for us. But if we can, that's a differentiated advantage because that means the actual sales and marketing part of what we're doing is working quite efficiently. We just happen to have a higher hurdle. If I was running track, you know, the difference between having a hurdle that goes up to my knees versus a hurdle that goes up to my hips, that's essentially the difference that we're talking about here. Now, on an LTV basis, our viewpoint, and we start, we're starting to see indications of this, our viewpoint is pretty straightforward. The fact that we have hardware that runs into our company's premises or that we install hardware into physical conference rooms and our customers, that ends up being a really powerful source of stickiness. What's interesting about conferencing technology, I mean, you, you know, I know you've talked with other folks that are familiar with the world of conferencing, mm-hmm. but the, what's interesting about conferencing technology is that it's not terribly sticky. The average person has four different conferencing tools installed on their computer, and they'll just happen to use whatever makes sense for the person that you're talking to. But by having hardware in the rooms, what we're able to do is drive a greater level of stickiness because, you know what, now you have some physical gear that you've deployed and is working well and is something that's going to require uh, a significant uh, effort to go out and change. Now, there's a trade-off there because we don't want to depend on that sort of lock-in for driving our customer satisfaction. We want the customers to just have a great experience. And so we spend all of our time focused on usage-oriented metrics. Are people engaged with the product, which has traditionally been a big problem in the world of conferencing technology. But I love that stickiness element. But I do want to dive into something that we're going to call Sean's 60-second Sasta. Are you ready? Let's do it. So when's a stretch VP a stretch too far? So my version of this is pretty simple. It's when they can't describe their midterm and long-term game plan in a structured, thoughtful, and simple way. Love that. That's a fantastic answer. Uh, challenges of doing both hardware and software simultaneously. What's the number one? Number one, everything is number one. <laughs> I regret uh, doing hardware. <laughs> <laughs> you have to deal with gross margins. You got to deal with over the air updates, logistics, end of life parts, compromises on the end user experience. How do you deal with different components interacting with your software in the cloud? Everything is harder when you have hardware and software. But that said, I think that creates a lot of defensibility uh, over the long term. Favorite SaaS reading material? Rainy day. What does Sean sit down to? Well, it's pretty easy. Saster. I like Tomas a lot. I think he does uh, some fantastic stuff. And then I wish he were still writing, but all of David Scott's material is just rich. And the more mature we're getting as a business, I feel like I'm finally getting to different levels of, of depth and analysis that he uh, he eventually got to. I have to say David Scott's is a, a biblical experience, but I do <laughs> want to finish the, this quick fire round. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time with High Five? I think probably the single greatest thing that I would point out is how to understand and how to focus on getting to the right business model as quickly as you possibly can. Turns out the tax of iterating your business model 
model is larger than I would have anticipated, particularly coming from a fast iteration software-like background that I have. Well, I mean, I, I obviously can't uh, help but dig in on that one. So moving out of the quick fire, and the final element to address is the business model itself. You've said before about the importance of figuring out your business model. Can you go a little deeper on this and what you mean by that? Yeah, so we started High Five five years ago, and we spent the first three years really in R&D. And what I would say is we got the product definition largely right. It took us a few years to build the right level of maturity and all of that. And so we actually did a really great job of delivering our product. And we see that in now our over 2,000 customers that are using High Five regularly. And we're now hosting over 30,000 meetings. And so we're seeing a really great validation that we got the product right from the get-go. Now, what was more challenging was because we were pulling together hardware and software, getting the business model right was quite tricky for us because it turns out there was no precedent for what we were trying to do in the B2B world at that point. And so what took us a while to get to was landing on this pure SaaS-based model for delivering hardware and software. So we decided to adopt a model that didn't come with any upfront hardware fees. It didn't have a per-user, per-month model. It was an unlimited all-you-can-eat model. It took us a while to align our business model with the value prop that we were offering to our customers. And so once we got there, everything just took off. And literally, it took off. Over the last year and a half, things have just been on fire for us. Now, the part that was hard was that iterating your business model is an incredible tax to your organization in a way that I didn't fully appreciate going into High Five. What I mean by that is your sales and marketing teams, whenever you change your pricing model, your sales and marketing teams are able to take advantage of any rhythm or consistency that they were able to build. And so they feel like the clock just got reset again. Whenever you try to forecast from one quarter to another to go build your plan, it's an apples to oranges comparison because all the variables from last quarter are different from the quarter that you're about to go through. And finally, there's a latency associated with it because you have this quarterly boundary whenever you happen to have a sales effort. And so whenever you make a change, or you have to wait for at least a quarter to see what the results are going to be. And oftentimes you don't want to make another change for the reasons I just described earlier. And so as a result, as somebody who comes from a software world where your tendency is, well, get stuff in front of customers as quickly as you can. I think we didn't fully appreciate what kind of challenge comes with this prospect of having to change and iterate on your business model. Now that said, I think we had to go through that process to learn what was the right model because the reality is there was no precedent for us to draft off for for the place that we ultimately landed at. And so as a result, we probably had to go through that process anyway, but I think we would have thought about managing expectations and managing the process there in a very different way had I have gone through this experience already. Now, final question, then you're relieved of my terrible British accent. It's communication around that business model change. You said about kind of the clock being reset on sales and marketing and also for the investor base, I'm sure it's it's also a communication challenge. So how do you address that two-sided element of communicating both to the team and then the investors, the, the business model change? Well, I think I would step back. I would probably say it starts with just setting expectations internally as a management team that you don't have this thing figured out and this period of time that you're about to go through is going to be this process of figuring it out. It's a careful 
balancing act because you want to have confidence that you're working against something that is going to work, but at the same time, know that you're experimenting and iterating. So I think it starts with first building a team of people that are comfortable with that stage of life. And I think we frankly didn't get that right all the time across the team. And so there was definitely a lot of learning there. I think the second piece is, I think you have to frame the fact that this part of your company building has not been solved yet. And you have to involve people in that conversation and involve people in the solution to the problem. I think, you know, in our particular case, I think there was a tendency to say, well, all right, we're going to figure this out along the way, but let's just focus on continuing to grow and solving all these different types of challenges. And so I think bringing people along that process and recognizing that, that you're in that phase of life is very critical to communication all the way from the board level, all the way down to the team level. Sean, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. As you can tell from my excitement around our conversation, thank you so much for joining me today. And I can't wait to see the roadmap ahead for High Five. Well, Harry, I appreciate you having us on and I'm excited to see what comes out of it and looking forward to talking again. So fantastic to have Sean on the show there. And if you want to see incredible speakers like Sean, you now can at SAS to Annual 2018. And if you use the promo code drinkswithharry.com, you can get 10% off your ticket price and mojitos with me thanks to the kind bank of Mr. Jason Lemkin. Big thanks for that. We'd love to see you there. But before we leave you today, if you are a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations, whether it be hiring execs, developing managers, and retaining that top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Now, Lattice is the number one performance management solution for growing companies. And with Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 performance review cycles as often as you want. And you also get a continuous feedback system with OKR goal tracking, real-time feedback, and one-on-one meetings to make sure employees really get that feedback between reviews. So find out why the likes of Coinbase, PlanGrid, Birchbox, and WePay trust Lattice as their performance management solution by heading over to lattice.com to start investing in your people. That's lattice.com, the number one performance management solution for growing companies. And we mentioned WePay there and it's thanks to my friends at WePay that I can introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS and co, a platform designed by freelancers for freelancers to help them run their businesses more effectively. The software provides robust tools to simplify a range of workflows from contracts to task management to invoicing to reporting and you can learn more at and.co and to learn how you can hit a hole in one with revenue from integrated payments like and co did, visit wepay.com forward slash SASTA. WePay's got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash Sasta. But as always, we so appreciate all your support and I look very forward to bringing you next week's episode.